back. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 30 today. And um, we'll continue this conversation that Jesus is having with John's disciples and um, uh, the crowd around them. I do apologize. My uh, was not ready for... Uh, oh, no, what have I done? Was not ready for my sermon in my thing. Okay, give me a second. I'm going to make it up while I talk around. So if you were here last week, and I'm, I'm going to look down while I try and figure out where I am, okay? So I, I, I apologize. But if you were here last week, we started talking about doubt, okay? We were in the, the very beginning of Matthew, and Jesus was in the in a crowd, and John's disciple, John the Baptist, who was in prison... He um, nope, not going to work. I'm just now realizing that I signed out of my Google account and signed in yours is in on this device, so I need to use my phone for my sermon this morning because that is what's going to actually where it's going to be. All right, sorry about that. So that's weird. Okay, thank you for your your patience. So we were in in there, and uh, John was. First of all, he was in prison. Second of all, he, uh, he was getting word that the nature of Jesus' ministry maybe wasn't um, going as going the way that he had anticipated. And so that led him to, to doubt. And Jesus' response to John was to speak truth to doubt. And he, took, he brought scripture specifically from Isaiah and... Um, and, and he gave John affirmation about his interpretation of Scripture. You know, kind of left it hanging a little bit about where the kingdom would, of God and how all that would, would play out. Um, and, uh, and he gave John some uh, truth to his doubt. So um, if, if, you, if you're looking for something like more practical to like how to, how to press into doubt a little bit, I would just commend to you Barnabas Piper's book, Help My Unbelief. Um, it's very accessible. Uh, if you, those of you will be familiar with John Piper's ministry, perhaps this is one of his, his sons that I worked with at Lifeway for a long time. He wrote a great book, Help My Unbelief. I highly recommend it to you um, if you're looking for something more, more practical to kind of help you with, with that. Okay. So, but that conversation between Jesus and, his, and John's disciples took place in public. Um, and the crowd listening to that conversation um, was a skeptical crowd. Now, I'm using two different words, doubt and skepticism, okay? Doubt is part of belief, but skepticism is unbelief that's clouded with admiration or curiosity, okay? So doubt is part of belief, but skepticism is unbelief clouded or mired in curiosity or even admiration. So that, that is, um, and it's this crowd, a skeptical, unbelieving crowd that Jesus is now addressing in verses 7 through 30 today. So I want to give you four considerations for the skeptic. You've got a friend that's skeptical, maybe curious or even like, I mean, I'm okay with Jesus, but is not a believer, 
These are four considerations that Jesus brought to bear on a crowd who was admiring him, listening to him, following him, but not believing him. Okay, that's what we have in this, in this text today. So I want to give you four considerations for the skeptic. And the first thing that Jesus gives, the first reason that Jesus gives that we should not be skeptical is that the kingdom of God is the winning kingdom. Okay? To be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to be on the winning team. And I get this from verses 7 through 11. Look at Matthew 11, verses 7 through 11 with me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, saying, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind, okay, which is a, a tall piece of grass that would get blown over by whatever. Like, is John you know, flexible and, and maybe, you know, he could see both sides of the thing. Like, you know, he's, he's not really convicted. Did you go see a guy like that? It's a sarcastic question. What did you go see? A, a man dressed in soft clothes? No, see who, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. You didn't go see that kind of person either. What then did you go see? A prophet? Yes. In fact, more than a prophet. It's the one about whom it is written, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. And then Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's what Jesus is doing. He is affirming the greatness of John the Baptist. You see that in verse 11. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet to have ever come along prior to Jesus' arrival. But what is it that made he's the goat? Okay? He's the G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, prophets. He is the goat. And what is it that made him the goat was that he had the opportunity, he had the responsibility of actually, physically pointing to the Messiah in the flesh. That's what made him goat. All right? He was greater than Moses. He was greater than, pick your prophet, even Elijah, Mary. All right? He was better. He was better than But why? Because he got the opportunity to physically point to the Messiah in the flesh. Okay? So that's what makes John great. But did you notice the last part of verse 11? But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist is the goat prophet up until the time Jesus came because he got to point to Jesus. And the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the goat. It's greater than the goat. I'm the goat. You're looking at him. I'm the goat. Shannon, you're the goat. You're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Ashley, you're the goat. The least of the... I'm done. The rest of you are all not goats. I'm just kidding. I'm just, for time's sake, I'm not going to call all of your names, okay? We're the goats. We are the great in the kingdom of heaven. We are better than John the Baptist. The least in the kingdom of heaven are better than John the Baptist. We are the greatest of all time. Why? Why are we the goats? How can it be that the least gifted, least significant, least prominent, least outspoken of today's believers 
be greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because we can point to Jesus and his work more clearly than John ever could. We could do it. When I was in high school, I had, uh, oh man, I mean, rural Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta, so fortunate to have a church with a truly stellar ministerial staff. My youth minister was awesome. He's still a, a confidant. My minister of music was more of a youth minister than I mean, we had ensemble, then choir, and then handbells, and all that. I mean, it was just nuts, all just for the youth. You know, it was crazy. And our pastor had been a student pastor before he came, and and so he was very well connected to the student ministry in the church. I mean, it was just, we were just really, really connected. It was very, very fortunate. And my senior pastor was also a really great preacher. He still is. He's in Alabama uh, preaching. Now, he was braggadocious. He was a big guy, played the uh, offensive line for Auburn University, uh, which they need him nowadays. But, uh, but he was under Pat Dye. Like, I mean, he, so he, he understood what it meant to be tough. He, said he had a big voice. He had a really big personality. And he knew that he had all that. Um, and, he, and, he, and he knew what we all knew and what we all told him, that he was the best preacher that Cleveland, Mississippi had ever had, okay, in our little town of 5,000 people. He was the goat of rural Mississippi preaching, right? Which is probably small ball for preaching, but that's okay. He was great. And fortunately, he, because, you know, back then we did two services, you know, where, where everybody would come in the morning and the Christians would come at night. And uh, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. Social stigma, right? So, so we had the little, you know, all the music or whatever, and Ryan, Ryan got up to the to stage. He said, well, I don't know about you all this morning, but I thought this morning's sermon was, was really, really good. So when I got home, I said, I said to my wife, baby, how many great preachers do you think there are in the state of Mississippi? And my wife replied, one less than you think there are. <laughs> I never forgot that story. I just love it. So, but he, he's a goat too, even if he thinks he's a goat. He's still a goat, all right? Because our goatness has nothing to do with our performance. Our goatness has nothing to do with our behavior. Our goatness has nothing to do with anything. Our goatness is based on the work of Jesus and our opportunity and our responsibility to point to the work of Jesus. And because we can do that with more clarity than John the Baptist, we are goats. We're the greatest of all time. Okay? This is humbling because it's not about us. Okay? We, we would prefer to establish our greatness with our effort, our giving, our intelligence, our gifts, our courage, our discernment, but none of that makes you a goat, right? The ability to point to clearly to the finished work of Jesus. That makes us goats. And goats win. By definition, they win. The kingdom of God is the Pro Bowl team that actually is going to make an effort in the Pro Bowl game. And we're going to win. The kingdom of God is full of goats and it's going to win. So to the skeptic, I would say, have you looked at the numbers? We're going to win. It only makes sense. The kingdom of God is going to win. The second thing Jesus says to the skeptic is that everything is happening according to plan. Because the skeptic might say, okay, I see what you're saying about the numbers, but have you looked around right now? 
It's not going real well. There are fissures all over people's response to Jesus' ministry. It's not going real good right now. In fact, I'd say that Jesus is in a little bit of trouble. And if you're just looking at the circumstances and not the sovereignty, then you'd be right. But Jesus elevates the conversation in verses 12 through 15. Everything is happening according to plan. From the days of John the Baptist until now, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John 14. Until John, sorry. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. What Jesus is saying here in verse 12 is that as the kingdom of God comes to bear on this world, it is more often attacked than embraced. That's what suffering violence means and that the violent are seizing it by force. They are coming after it in a violent response and it is coming out causing disruption. Okay. And the fact that more people attack it and persecute it than do associate with it should not deter you from becoming a part of the kingdom of God because it's all happening exactly as God planned it. Okay, I've said this a dozen times already, but it all goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. It all goes back to the Beatitudes. Jesus says in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say every kind of evil against you. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. My favorite, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who say, gif, raise your hand, gif, raise your hand if you're a gif person, jif. Person. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. All right. Okay. Well, whatever. Okay. The, apparently, there is an alternative. There is the meme crowd or whatever. Okay. This is how denominations start. It's, it's over arguments like this. One of my favorite gifts or gifs is that of a large green trash dumpster that is on fire and floating down a flooded suburban street, okay? It's a dumpster fire floating down a flood, right? It is a gift that I use far too much, okay? But it's, it's accurate far too often. So I use it all the time. And if I'm honest, I would sometimes say, I wonder if the state of Christianity in the church isn't that. Like... It's a green trash dumpster fire raging and floating down a flooded suburban street. Like, that's Christianity in America. Sometimes I wonder. Okay. And Jesus says that that is the plan. The kingdom of God is a revolution, not a peaceful transition. And so a green trash dumpster fire raging and floating down a flooded suburban street, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. The kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. Because what we're tempted to do, we're tempted to do, we're saying, okay, if, this, if the kingdom of God is real, if the truth of the gospel is, is real and it's actually supposed to do what it's going to do, then everybody should love it. 
The gospel causes as much trouble in the church as it does outside of the church. It's been my experience. But the pain is part of the plan. The kingdom of God will suffer violence as it advances, and the violent will come after it by force, with their force. It's part of the plan. So the fissures, the cracks, oh, I don't know, it looks like it's shaky. I don't think Jesus is going to make it. Part of the plan. In fact, it's going to go straight to his death. Part of the plan. The plan. Okay. Jesus gives a third reason, verse 16. The, the, the skepticism is illogical. Skepticism is illogical. Verses 16 through 19. To what? Jesus then looks at this crowd and says, To what should I compare this generation? It's like this. Here's a metaphor for you. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, Hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament for you, and you didn't mourn. And then Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and and you said that he's got a demon. The Son of Man, me, came eating and drinking, and you said, Look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus leans in and he says, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Super cool passage. What does this mean? This passage illustrates that there was a lot of skepticism and a lot of curiosity, a lot of maybe even admiration, but there's certainly not any belief. Okay. And I want you to see the relationship between verses 17, so I'm going to kind of teach just a little bit, okay, and verse 18 and 19, okay? The, the parable, the little parable that Jesus gives about children in the marketplace calling out saying, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. We played the lament, and you didn't mourn. Okay, So Jesus, this, is a, this is like a real thing. Um, so um, have you ever gone into a, a place of business on a Saturday, maybe a retail store, locally owned and operated, and, and there'd be a, like a nine-year-old behind the counter <laughs> working with mom and dad or with grandpa? Because you know, kids go, and, and he's behind the counter, and he's playing, Maybe he's got mom or dad's phone, or maybe he's got fidget toys, or maybe he's got homework, or whatever, right? He's doing, he or she is doing something like that. Well, the marketplace was also the playground for the village in Jesus' day. Marketplace, everybody went to either buy and sell, buy, to buy and or sell their, their goods, and so children would come with them into the marketplace, and they would, that would be where they'd play. Everybody's going to be there for at least a certain part of the day, so that's where they, they would go. And so Jesus uses an actual real-life situation to help people understand. Let me tell you what you guys are like. You're like kids who've gone to the playground where everybody's going to be, and, uh, and then these games get offered, but you don't want to play. You came there to play. The games are offered to play, but you don't play. Let me put it more, more specifically to you, okay? Jesus' ministry is like flutes and dancing. Why? Because he's Jesus. It's the wedding. It is on. It's a wedding game. The, the church and the bride, like it is, that is what's going on there. So Jesus' ministry is like flutes and dancing. And John the Baptist's ministry is 17b there. It's lament, but you didn't mourn. Okay? So if you think about John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry and how different they were, you can understand this metaphor, right? So John's ministry was very ascetic. 
very restrictive. His disciples are still fasting. Remember, they went to Jesus and asked him about that earlier in, John, in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus' ministry was restorative. It was redemptive. It was celebrated. They weren't fasting. They were eating all the time, you know, healing people left and right. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this generation of people, and by generation, he doesn't mean everybody that fits that 19-year-old window or whatever. They, that's not the way they thought, talked or back then, right? He just means, you people, well, we can tell what you're like, okay? You reject both John and Jesus. You, I mean, you look at John's ministry and go, that guy's nuts. He's got a demon. You look at me and you think, oh my goodness, how could God be like that? How could he love sinners? Like, you can't have it both ways. You can't come to the party. You can't come to the place to play and then not play. You're rejecting both ends. You're inconsistent. You are illogical in your understanding of things. You're like children playing in the marketplace who refuse to play both games. You can't lament John's asceticism and berate Jesus' indulgence. And your inconsistency in that only proves how illogical your doubt really is. And then Jesus gives a final reason that we should not be skeptical. And that reason is that judgment is coming. Skepticism has a cost. Okay, look at verses 20 through 24. Then Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not, here's the word from this morning, Sunday school lesson, Repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. By the way, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile cities. Not so, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Those are Jewish cities. Verse 22, but I tell you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down. It's actually a very forceful verb in the Greek. You will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now this, this type of talking that Jesus does here, these are called woes, because when you read them, you kind of step back and you go, whoa. Okay. It's a joke, sorry. You feel the heat, though? You feel Jesus turn up the heat? It's because skepticism is unbelief, and unbelief has consequences. So Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida were the cities in which most of Jesus' miracles had been performed and the vast majority of the people in these cities were not repenting. And the the very privilege of witnessing Jesus' miraculous ministry should have moved people to repent and accept the invitation of the kingdom of heaven, but they weren't. And Capernaum is especially sharp in its contrast here. That's Jesus' hometown area, right? And um, because of their rejection of Jesus, they're going to have a fate that's worse than Sodom. And no Jew would ever look back on Sodom and Gomorrah's story and thought, you know, I could have lived there. They didn't. So for Jesus to, 
to Capernaum is going to get it worse than Sodom? Yes, because if had Sodom seen this, they would have repented and you haven't. That's how steeped in unbelief you are in non-repentance. So if you've got a pet or a child or an employee or just a person that you have some semblance of relationship with, maybe even authority over, you have tried both positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement in this relationship. Um, I have found that negative reinforcement does not work with a dog. Don't, don't bother. Just treat what you want them to do over and over and over again, and eventually they will, they will get there. Um, I have found that positive reinforcement works best with my children, but sometimes negative reinforcement has its place. I have also found that to be true in the workplace. Um, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school today, about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for repentance. You know, for, for reasons that are, very, that are varied and that are very complex, our culture right now doesn't really care for negative reinforcement. I, I, don't have, I have a willingness, but I do not have time to indulge in that conversation this morning. Okay? But we just don't like it when people go negative, unless we want to go negative. Right. We, we, generally speaking, we like to be positively inspired out of our circumstances, not warned to avoid our circumstances. Okay. Now, regardless of with that, throughout the gospel, Jesus is, chooses both. Jesus chooses both at his discretion, and sometimes we will, will too. And as we go into the rest of Matthew over the next few months, okay, the people are going to reply with more and more hostility to who Jesus is and what he's doing, which is only going to validate his warnings. <clears throat> the kingdom is winning, and it's going to win. Okay? You know, on ESPN, I don't have the game. I don't have... We don't have live to be this, but sometimes I'll game cast in the app of ESPN, and it throws up this little thing like the winning percentage of teams. And so as the game goes, you know, it's like more and more often, more and more affirming. So you'll get to a team that's like 98% sure to win, okay, until the game over, and then it says 100% because they, they, they won the game, okay. If the kingdom of God is going against the kingdom of this world, it could say the kingdom of this world is 99% certain to win this game. It's still going to lose, it's a, the game is it's over. It's, it's coming. King is coming, as King's ex used to say. King is coming. So we're, we're on the winning team. So skepticism, is, there's no place for it because you're going to lose if you're not of the part of the kingdom of God. Okay? And it's illogical, it's inconsistent, and there's judgment for it if you do not believe. Okay? But Jesus is so good. The alternative to skepticism is faith. And even in the midst of denouncing skepticism, Jesus compassionately offers faith. Look at verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Stop fighting the kingdom. Stop trying to earn your way. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble a heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Jesus is in full knowledge that he is the one through whom the Father can be known. And he looks out on this crowd with compassion because they are weary and because they are burdened and they're trying to know God through their high achievement and their legalism and their religiosity and, and it's burdensome and he, and he invites them in graciously to know the Father through him. That's what he invites us to do. And if we'll do that, we get rest. We get rest from the burden of trying to earn God's favor through keeping of the law. We exchange the yoke of trying to earn His acceptance for the yoke of having it because of Jesus. And He says, come. He says, come. Why? Why should you come? Verse 29, because I am. Underscore the words, lowly and humble. That's why you come. The general bent in leaders and teachers in this world is to make sure that everybody around them understands just how superior and important they are. At the core of their being, such leaders are self-important and they live to make sure that you know just how standing and wise and smart they are and they want you to come to them because they are awesome and they want you to know it. And Jesus says, I want you to come because I am lowly. Oh, God is lowly. God is humble of heart. That's the kingdom to which you are invited to come. And it's the winning kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. I mean, it's, it's either, it's, it, it needs to be true, Lord, because if it's not, it's bonkers. And we believe it's true. We can't explain it all, but we believe it anyway, because you have revealed the truth of it to us and opened our eyes by the power of your spirit, by your grace through faith. You've drawn us to yourself, and we've responded in joy. Many of us who are believers in this room, that's where we stand, and we believe it, and we trust it. And we know that there, are, there is much to doubt from time to time, but we speak truth to that doubt and we, um, and, and, and we walk step by step by grace through faith with you. And yet there are many in this world who are very skeptical. Maybe they admire you. You're like, hey, great teacher, you know, but they don't follow. They don't submit. They don't obey. They don't love. They don't come to you as a lowly and humble God because quite frankly, they're unimpressed. They want somebody that can really blow their blow their minds with how awesome they are. They want a narcissist, and you are not that. You actually are worthy of our affection. You actually are worthy of our love. You actually are worthy of our worship. You actually are as great as some people would have us believe about them. And we know it because you were lowly and humble, lived the life that we could not live, paid the, paid the very penalty for our sin that we could never pay. And it's our faith and trust in you as a lowly and humble God that makes us right with you. So make that real and true in our hearts today and help us to respond in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.